Well, good morning, Door Creek. Welcome back to spring. Wow. So if you're a guest here, my name's Mark, one of the pastors, part of the teaching team, and you're catching us in Roadblocks Part 2. So if you're interested in these other topics, we covered them earlier in the year. You can find them online. We covered fear, hurt, anger, depression, guilt, and shame. Now we're going to hit worry next week, then pride, denial, loneliness, insecurity, and today we kick off the roadblock of doubt. So you ready for a top 10 things that we doubt? Here we go. Number 10, a headline from the National Enquirer. If you believe those, you should doubt it, all right? Stop it. All right, number nine, an email from another country promising us a large sum of money if we'll just give them the numbers of our bank account. We doubt that. Number eight, the national coverage on our cell phone plans. We doubt that. This one's for me, the Cubs winning another World Series during this century. Yes, I'm beginning to doubt that too. Number six, that we could live off Social Security check when we retire. No way. Number five, that our kids will ever clean up their rooms without us asking. We doubt it. Number four, any lifetime warranty. We doubt it. Number three, that last year's Christmas lights will work again this year. Okay, I'm not talking about the LED kind, but the other ones, right? We doubt it. Number two, that whatever line I'm in will be the fastest. Murphy's Law will take over, and it will be the slowest. Number one, that since spring starts March 21st, we can put away our snowblowers and shovels. Oh, man, that was almost cruel. I, I wrote that long before the weather forecast of this weekend, but it was beautiful this morning, wasn't it? All right, so doubt. What is it? This feeling, right, of uncertainty. To, uh, to feel uncertain about or question the truth of something or someone, right? Synonyms include hesitation, reservation, misgivings, and there's a whole host of others. Our word doubt comes from the Latin word dubiter, which means to hesitate. The root word duo is right there in this Latin word or the word two or the number two. So it's this idea of being in two minds. If you believe, then you're in one mind. If you don't believe, you're in one mind. When you doubt, you're in both. You're, you're bouncing between the two, between belief and unbelief. It's really important to catch up with this fact because sometimes we feel like, I'm the only one with these questions. I'm the only one that has these kind of doubts. Everyone who's ever lived from whatever culture, from whatever faith background, wrestles with doubt. Christians, Jews, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, New Agers, and yes, even atheists have doubts about their view of there is no God. The poster child for atheism lately has been Richard Dawkins, the best-selling author of The God Delusion. On a scale of one to seven, one being absolute certainty that there is a God, seven, absolute certainty that there is no God, Dawkins says, I'm a six. Here's his quote. I cannot know for certain, but I think God is very improvable, improbable. In other words, he can't prove the non-existence of God. And I live my life on the assumption that he is not there. I remember early on as a child coming to faith and wrestling. Like here was my big thing that I just couldn't get my, my mind around. So if God knows everything, then he knew that Adam and Eve were going to eat the forbidden fruit. 
So how in the world was that fair? Because like, there's no way they had any choice in the matter if God already knew they were going to eat the fruit. And my little seven-year-old mind just went around and around and around. And we wrestle with that today. God's completely sovereign, and I make free choices that I'm responsible for. And it's like blowing the circuitry. How could those both be true? I remember, you know, coming to faith as this young boy at Winneka Bible Church in Sunday school, and then, you know, repeated times in junior high and high school, people would be, you know, missionary speakers would come in, evangelists would come in, and they'd give an invitation, and I'm like, just to be sure, I'm praying again, I'm raising my hand again, because I was dealing with doubts. We doubt sometimes when it's hard. Is, are my prayers actually getting to the ceiling? Does, does, does God hear? Does he know? Does he see? Does he care? We doubt that his promises are going to come true. You think about Abraham and Sarah having great doubts. Come on. For 24 years, they're waiting for the promised son. They're like 190 before Isaac shows up. Lots of doubts. We doubt his goodness when life isn't good, but it's just plain hard. We doubt complete forgiveness when we're still badgered and ravaged by our guilty past. We doubt his unconditional love when, man, we're so insecure and wonder if anybody could love us like that. We doubt his sovereign control over all things, that he could work all things together for good to those who love him. When our lives right now are completely out of control, we doubt his control. And so Alistair McGrath in his book, Doubting, says this, doubt is a permanent feature of the Christian life. So stop beating yourself up like you're the only one. Sometimes it's in the background, sometimes in the foreground. It's a symptom of our human frailty. But be clear, doubt is not unbelief. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. What we do with our doubts is crucial. We're all going to have them. The issue is what are we going to do with our doubts? When doubts surface, we need to realize we're at a precarious crossroads. And doubt is going to lead us one way or the other. Doubts can drown us in despair and lead us to unbelief, or they can drive us to Christ and actually rebirth our hope and, and rebuild our strength and our faith in Christ. It's going to take us in one of two ways. The dark side, to despair and unbelief, or what Tennyson calls the sunnier side, to Christ, the light of the world, and to the hope and a stronger faith. In his poem, The Ancient Sage, Tennyson writes these lyrics, if you will, for nothing worth proving can be proven, nor yet disproven. Wherefore, thou be wise, cleave ever to the sunnier side of doubt. One last quote to remind us that it's the, it's the normal part of the Christian life is Keller in his excellent book, A Reason for God. Tim Keller writes, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse overnight if she has failed over the years 
get this, to listen patiently to her own doubts, his own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. A reason for God, Tim Keller. So what we're going to do is look at three doubters in the New Testament that kind of describe categories of doubt. We're going to look at Peter and emotional doubt. We're going to look at John the Baptist and intellectual doubts. We're going to look at Thomas, doubting Thomas, and what's called volitional or willful doubts. And we're going to see how Jesus meets each of these doubters, how he responds to them in their situation of serious doubt. So the first one, if you have a Bible, is Matthew 14, and it's Peter, who's uh, just seen Christ walking on the water, and he says, man, I want to try this too. Peter's always the first to jump into the action, and after Jesus settles him down because they think it's a ghost, Peter then kind of gathers himself and, of course, is the first to speak, and he says this in Matthew 14, verse 28, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, Tell me to come to you on the water, because I, I want to do it too. I want to walk on water. So Jesus says, come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat. Can you imagine this? Walked on the water and came towards Jesus. Man, is that cool. But when he saw the wind, what does that mean? When's the last time you saw the wind? When he saw the waves, is what Matthew's saying, right? When he saw what the wind was doing on the surface of the waters, he was afraid. So here's the dominant emotion. Fear. He's afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. So I love Jesus' response. Because I'm thinking he could have played a different way. He's going down. John's reaching for a life preserver, right? He's reaching for some rope. And Jesus says, hold on, John. Let this dude tread some water for a while because he's got to learn his lesson here. And that's not what it says. Immediately, immediately. He didn't wait till he went down the last time. And all you could see above the water were a couple of fingertips and then he grabbed him. No, it said he immediately, out of his mercy, as he cried for help, he pulled them up out of the water that he was sinking in. And remember how they got to that point. Jesus walked to that point, and Peter walked to that point. And we can only assume that he pulled them up out of the water, put his arm around them, and they walked. They didn't swim. They walked back to the boat. And it's so powerful that it says that when he sat in the boat, the wind, the storm calms. It was a kindness to remind him as he walked back on the boat that he's powerful enough to walk on water. It was a kindness that he reminded him of his power over all of creation that it went just calm at that moment. And it was a kindness that he didn't make a bunch of statements and say, you, you just are a loser disciple. You are just the worst. And it's going to get worse, Peter. You're going to deny me three times. That's coming too. He just, he asks him a simple question. I don't know if you noticed, Jesus is always leading with questions. 
Statements put people like in defensive mode. Questions totally different. Why did you doubt? Peter, I, I, I want you to think about this right now. I, I, I want you to investigate your doubts. He made it really clear the problem wasn't, you know, the storm. The problem wasn't Jesus' lack of authority and power over all creation. The problem was you lost your focus and you've got weak faith because it's shrinking as you move away from looking at me to looking at the storm and the circumstances. Reminding us that God is gracious to a doubter and Jesus has room relationally for doubters. And there isn't anything that freaks Jesus out when his disciples doubt. He can handle our doubts. He handled Peter's. We're going to see that he handles John the Baptist. He he handles the doubts of doubting Thomas. And he handles your doubts. And he's big enough, parents, to handle your kids' doubts. Someone that's really close to you that is wrestling with their faith. And it's freaking you out right now. Jesus shows up in the life of someone who's wrestling with doubt and he's big enough for their doubt. So that's the emotional stuff, right? When we're going through something really hard, Stan, his brother, right? So this accidental hunting accident where he trips and falls, the gun goes off and he's dead and he's going, God, how could you let this happen? If you're all powerful and the emotions are so strong, The fear for Peter was real. He's afraid he's going to drown. And Jesus meets us with these doubts that just come out of these storms of life and with the strong emotions that are are putting God on the dock. And is he really loving? And is he really true? And is it true? And, you know, that's just coming right out of this. Now, there's a different kind. The intellectual doubt. It might come out of some circumstances like this, but very likely just out of the recesses of our mind and our reason as we're trying to put it together, the facts. If you're this intellectual kind of person and you like reason arguments and maybe you grew up and you know you love the sciences and everything's empirical and the scientific method will tell you what is true and this kind of stuff of our faith and any faith for that matter doesn't quite work like that, doesn't quite fit into the test tube. So you got these intellectual doubts like John the Baptist. So here we go back. A few pages to chapter 11, Matthew's Gospel, verse 2. So the scene is uh, John the Baptist is in prison. Remember why? He, um, he pointed out to Herod that, hey, buddy, we know what you've done. You've taken your brother's wife. That's, that's wrong, and it gets him in jail. So that's where he's at. He's in prison. Verse 2, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah. So that's a title for Jesus, the promised Savior. The anointed one is what that word literally means. He sent his disciples, so John has followers. He sends his disciples to ask him, that is to ask Jesus, this question. Are you the one who's to come, or should we expect someone else? So are you the real deal? Are you really the Messiah? Because I've got doubts here in jail right now. Jesus replied, now to his disciples, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. So they've been hearing some things about Jesus, and they're seeing some things. Here's what they're to report. 
The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble or fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. And then here's what he says in verse 11. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist yet, Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So again, we just note Jesus' response to the doubts of John the Baptist. And before we note that, let's just remember his unusual pedigree. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. He's born into a priest's family. His dad was a priest. When his mom was carrying him in the pregnancy, an angel visited her and let her know that you are, you're carrying this special little guy who's going to grow up and become the forerunner of the promised Savior. He grows up to be this mighty preacher. People come from all over to hear him preach. And his job is to get people ready to give their lives to Christ and follow him as Messiah. He sees Jesus and he points out that he's the Messiah when he says to his disciples in the crowd, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's there at his baptism. He actually is asked by Jesus to baptize him, which means he saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove on Jesus and he likely heard the voice of the Father say, you are my son, speaking to Jesus, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. But it's this guy, John the Baptist, in spite of the miraculous revelation, despite his public declarations that he's the guy, he is really wrestling with, is he the guy? Because maybe it worked out like this. I was expecting if he was the guy, then he would do what the prophet Isaiah said he would do. He would proclaim freedom. For the captives, hello, like I'm in a jail. What's up with that? If Jesus is the Messiah, why am I in prison? Unmet expectations can drive us to deep doubt, even intellectual doubts. So Jesus says, all right, you guys want to know if I'm the one? And I love what he didn't say. He didn't say, Hey, you know what, tell, tell John, we don't ask those kinds of questions. That's taboo. That's, that's, you know, out of bounds. Can't ask that question. That's an unfair question. Aren't you glad that Jesus just responds to these honest questions? You know, Steve Jobs was 13 in 1968 when he saw the cover of the Life magazine of these kids that were dying of starvation in Biafra. He grew up in his church, and he went to his pastor, his Lutheran pastor, and he said, Pastor, does God know everything? Steve, God knows everything. Then he pulled out the magazine. He says, does God know about these kids? And the pastor said, well, you know, God knows about those kids too. And he understood where Steve was going. How could a good and loving and all-powerful God allow for this kind of suffering in the world? 
And the pastor's response to Steve Jobs at age 13 was, Steve, you just don't understand. End of conversation. There, there, there was no, man, these are hard things. Can we get together and talk about it? It was like, that's out of bounds. Steve Jobs left the church and never returned because his faith community didn't have room for doubts. May that never be true of us. But man, it's a scary thing. Like, what, what, what are people going to think? Well, people are going to think, I got those two. I've wrestled with those two. Don't, don't ever do that. I, I was talking to a friend who now is a pastor, and one of the hallmarks of his preaching is he believes what he's saying. And you know why he believes what he's saying? For two years, he was doubting his faith. And he says, the best thing I was blessed with is people who took my questions and doubts seriously and did not give me pat answers. Jesus doesn't give them pat answers. Jesus doesn't blow them off and say, foul, you can't ask that. And Jesus' response to the question are profound. He gives evidence and he gives encouragement. So you, you want to know. Well, I'm not just going to give you my word. Yes, I'm the guy. I'm going to give you evidence that is rooted in the scriptures. And so what he does is he says, well, tell him this is what my ministry is about, right? The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead arise, the good news is preached to the poor. Do you know where that exact, those exact words come from? Isaiah 61, Isaiah 35. He's saying, Tell John the Baptist about my ministry, the things you've heard about, the things that you've seen, and help him understand that the things I'm doing, they connect perfectly with the prophetic word written a long time, 800 years before Christ ever came up to say, these are the kind of things the Messiah is going to do, the promised Savior. He gave him evidence that the things the word of God says are going to be true about the promised Messiah are true and you can see them. You bear witness to him. He gives him evidence. And he also gives him encouragement. So I love that line where it says, and just as the disciples are going back to see John in prison and give him the good news, he has this just glowing report about John the Baptist. And I'm thinking they heard it. We don't know, but I'm thinking they heard it. Because you know what? When John heard again, his disciples say, John, he is the right guy. You know how John could have felt right there? Man, why did I even send them? I'm such a loser that I doubted. It would have been such an easy time to just be ravaged in guilt and shame. And so they didn't just bring the message of, he's the guy. We've seen it. We've heard it. It all lines up. The prophetic word in Isaiah, his ministry here today. But then to also say, and get this, John. He said this about you. There is no other guy that's ever been born of a woman that's greater than you. Oh, what a kind thing to hear and to say about this man who was ravaged by his doubt. Ravaged. There's some lessons we can learn here. The lesson of vulnerability that is modeled really profoundly by John. That had to be hard. He's the guy who said, this is the guy. Behold the Lamb of God. He, he, John's the guy who said, hey, guys, I know you've been my followers, but you know what? I got to move to the background. I got to decrease. He's got to increase. In fact, some of Jesus' disciples were John's disciples first. 
And then to say, guys, I know what I said I was sure that he's the guy. I'm not sure anymore. That was some serious vulnerability and humility. And he modeled that. And that's a good thing, not a weak thing. That's a good thing to model. He took his doubts to Jesus through his disciples. That's a good thing. We do that through prayer and studying the word. Notice he brought a specific question. So he brought specificity to doubt. Here's what happens when we get into these seasons of doubt. It becomes like a fog. We don't even know what we're doubting anymore. And so this is a great thing is to just reflect. What exactly am I doubting? What he was doubting is, Jesus, are you really the promised Messiah, the Son of God? He was very specific about that. That's a good thing. And then Jesus was model extraordinaire of being merciful to those who doubt. And that's what the scriptures teach us in Jude, the 22nd verse. Be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful. So now we get to doubting Thomas. And I want to give you another adjective to describe Thomas. It's a D one. He's defiant. Doubting Thomas. He's big time defiant. This is willful, volitional. I am not going to believe it. So we read about this in John chapter 20, verse 20 through 24. John chapter 20, you'll see it up on the screen again. 20 through 24. I think I just said that wrong. 24 through 29. 24 through 29. Now Thomas, get this, also known as Didymus. So Didymus means twin. So that's interesting. So he was a twin by birth. But I think maybe it's also a little description about this double-mindedness. He was a twin and just bouncing between belief and doubt, right? So one of the 12, that means he's been with Jesus, guys, for three and a half years. He didn't just meet him one afternoon. He spent three and a half years with him. So one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. The reference is back to verse 19, Easter Sunday night, when Jesus shows up in the upper room and everybody's there to see it except for Thomas. So the other disciples, verse 25, told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, same room, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, i.e., he didn't use the door. He didn't have to. Awesome. He stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. It's me. It's not a ghost, right? Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those, he's talking about us, who have not seen and yet have believed. So I I love this beautiful painting by Caravaggio, back in 1601, the incredulity of St. Thomas. And just as you're looking at that, let me just, just, just point out some things that we should note here. So note that Jesus knew all about 
Thomas, all about his doubts, all about his willful resistance. And note that he moved towards the stubborn, defiant disciple when he was resisting the, the eyewitness account of 10 of his brothers that he's just done three and a half years with. And it's just a good reminder that, that, that Christ in his mercy, he pursues not just people who are struggling because it's really hard right now or intellectual, but actually just rebellious because this is kind of coming from a rebel place in our heart, these willful doubts where we're just deliberately as a matter of principle saying, I refuse to believe. It is totally saying, I'm going down the right side of this path to the darker side. I'm taking it down to unbelief. That Jesus pursues him. This is powerful. And he, and he gives him the evidence and he like gives a repeat performance. So it's the same place. It's the same evidence. And it's a repeat performance just for doubting, defiant Thomas. He could have rejected him and said to this obstinate skeptic, you know what, Thomas, you got no part in me. Hit the road, Tom. He could have said that. But he was kind. He gave clear instruction. This is interesting. He says, stop doubting and believe. Literally, don't become unbelieving. Man, you're starting to head down that dark side. Don't become unbelieving, but believing. Thomas is being challenged. Turn back from the dark side of doubt and turn to the sunnier side. And he does. And from the lips of doubting Thomas comes some of the highest Christology, the highest confession of who Christ is. My Lord and my God. It's beautiful. And in that direction, stop doubting and believe, all of a sudden we have instruction that, that actually... When you choose not to believe, you actually have the option to choose to believe. And you might feel like, oh, the evidence is over. Oh, I can't do that. But actually, it's good to know you are not powerless to move from choosing not to believe to choosing to believe. That's what he teaches there. That's what he's asking Thomas to do right there. So let's bring it home as we think about as, as we just think about Peter, as we think about John the Baptist, as we think about Thomas, as we think about emotional doubts right now. It's loud. It's strong, the feelings. Putting God on trial right now. Hey, it's just good to remember at the heart of this is let's be sure we got our eyes in the right place. So Peter is drowning because he lost focus. Super easy to do. Super. I mean, all we got to do is just think about Stan's story and go, I mean, what else can you think about right now than that your, your, your brother just died in this, in this just needless hunting accident and you're rather, this is your twin and only those who are identical twins get that kind of a bond. I mean, how, it's so understandable when it's hard right now that that's all you can see. And we just got to remember that there's more, that there's a God who's bigger than our storm, who can help us walk through the storm, who can calm the storm, who can build up our faith in the midst of the storm. We got to remember that our feelings, as strong as they are, are not necessarily true. Don't trust your feelings. They do not have the ability to tell you what is true. Stay in the word of God. 
We got we to remember, too, we got we to check our expectations. What are our expectations? Is that, is that why we're doubting? Because right now, my life right now, man, I didn't think. I thought when I was signing up for you, Jesus, it's just going to be a lot easier. What's up with that? Check your expectations. Do they line up with what Jesus said when he said, hey, guys, in this world, you will have trouble. Hey, if you want to be my disciple, pick up your cross. He didn't say in this, in this life, man, it's going to be easy, cheesy pie. It's going to be tiptoeing through the tulips the rest of your life. It's always going to be up and to the right. No, he said, you know, it's going to be hard. Uh, check your expectations when we're in a period of doubt. Retrace why we come to faith. Remember God's faithfulness, what our life was like beforehand. His faithfulness personally to us Remembering is a strong way to strengthen faith, to put some of those doubts to rest. Cry out to help for him. Peter, save me. I was talking to a pastor friend who said, I had a season of doubt, and what I can say marked my life at that time was I stopped talking to God. I stopped talking. I just cut him out. I didn't think about him. I didn't stop him. I was, I was really involved in this other relationship. wasn't Christ-honoring, and I just cut God out. And man, the turning point is when I cried out to God. Francis Chan, I was just listening to him this week. He said, my seasons of doubt all have one thing in common. Before those seasons of doubt, within those seasons of doubt, a season of prayerlessness, which is just about talking to God building that relationship, working it through with him. I love the question that God asks Adam in the garden. So when Adam and Eve eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says that they are now naked and ashamed. They cover themselves up and they hide, remember? So God comes and says, Adam, where are you? And then he comes out finally and says, well, I was hiding. Why were you hiding? Because I, I, I knew I'm naked. And God asks him, who told you that? So you've got to listen to your doubts and actually listen to where they're coming and ask yourself the question, why, who's, who, what's the voice? Who told you that? For the intellectual doubts, man, there's a bunch of resources uh, right on your sermon discussion guide at the bottom, a bunch of resources. If you're an intellectual, a reason for God would be a great read for you. If you've never heard of a guy named Ravi Zacharias, he's got all kinds of short segments on uh, YouTube and on the internet where you can just hear this great intellectual from India who has argued for the faith all around, all around the world with Muslims and all, all kinds of different faiths, the Mormons, uh, some great resources. But what I, what I would say is you just make a beeline to Christ. That's what John the Baptist did. You got intellectual doubts. You got to figure out who Jesus is. Just focus it on Christ and focus it on his resurrection because if he didn't rise from the dead, the whole thing's a house of cards and false. And then you got to realize that it, you may reject Christianity, but you're believing something. And so you got to doubt your doubts and you got you to understand, so what is my worldview and how does it answer the fundamental questions of life that I would say the Christian faith answers with coherence and consistency? That is, the question of origin. How do we get here? 
The, the, the question of meaning. What is the meaning of life? Why are we here? And with that, what do we do with the junk in our life like the guilty past? How do you deal with guilt? How does your worldview deal with that? Then there's the question of morality. On what basis should we live our life? On what basis should our ethics be based upon? And then the question of destiny. Where are we going? You got, you know, if anywhere, you, you're, you've got a worldview. It may not have God. It may not have Christ. But you've got to wrestle with those questions. And you've got to compare it to the Bible's answers to those questions. And I really encourage you as you, as you wrestle with intellectual doubt and you've got some philosophers that you're following and reading, uh, don't just check out their arguments. Check out their life. You want an interesting read? Read Paul Johnson's Intellectuals. A lot of them atheists. And just look at, look at their lives and go, is that, appeal, is that the kind of life you want to lead? And compare that to Christ. So as we kind of bring it to a close here, back to all of us, whether we're a doubter here today or not, whether it's emotional, intellectual, or willful, um, I, I would just like to say, remember, we all have doubts. It's what we do with them. We all have doubts. If um, it's willful right now, and we're just defiant like Thomas, you know, I, I think we should just ask ourselves honestly, is this convenient right now so that I don't have to surrender my life to Christ? Is this convenient right now? Because I'm actually doing some things that I know aren't God-honoring, and I really don't want to change that right now, but there's so much tension between who Jesus is and what he's called me to be, that I've got to either repent and align my life back to Christ, or I just got to just kind of, but I don't want to be blatant and say, you know, I just reject Christ. I'm just going to kind of put this little convenient, like, I'm just, I'm struggling. And are you really struggling with Christ or how you're actually living your life and you don't want to bring that to submission? So don't let doubt be the driver you know, they, they might be riding shotgun at this point in your life. Do not give them the keys to the car. And do not let doubt be your destination. Do not let doubt be your destination. And be, be weary of the damage it can do if it takes you down that path of despair and to unbelief. With God's help, take that sunnier side. Follow Christ, the light of the world. Look, at the end of the day, it's not about propositional truth. It's about a person who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's about Christ. And at the end of the day, as we become more familiar with Christ's love for us, it's going to settle many of the doubts that you have. He loves you so much. There's nothing you've ever done. There's nothing you could ever do that'll separate you from his love. His love is consistent. Get this. There's nothing you could do that would change God's love for you. There's nothing you could do where God says, oh, I'm, I'm backing off. And get this, there's nothing better you can do where God goes, that a boy, that a girl, now that's better. I'm up in it too. Perfect love. Demonstrated right here, Thomas. Put your hands, put your hands right here. Guys, we're gonna get to heaven. We're gonna see those nail print hands feet that are pierced out of his love for you and me. 
May you find the kindness, the mercy, the strength of Christ in this season of doubt. And with that, may it take you to the sunnier side of more hope and a stronger faith. Let's pray. Lord, you are so kind. You are so kind and so patient with us. And you're more than that. You lived this life. You went through the cross and suffering and injustice. And so you had emotions. You had feelings. And so you get us. But you are the one that can help us through this in a way that no one else can. And so, Lord, I just pray for a friend who's listening now that is just really going through it for whatever reason, that you'd steady them, and we just thank you that you pursue doubters, that you give evidence, evidence of your love and of your kindness, of your power. And I just pray that for the person who wonders if you even are, that you'd show yourself up strong, I pray that we, we would be a church that there wouldn't be any Steve Jobs coming out of here who just turned their back on the church. I, I pray, Lord, that we would model your grace and your kindness. And so we love you, Lord. And we thank you that we can call you a friend, our Lord, and our God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.